So what we're doing last week, this week, and next week is we're talking about uh, how, do relationships of heal, how do relationships heal in light of the Christian gospel? How do we both make peace and keep peace and enjoy harmony with one another? And the, the, one of the challenges of preaching this is most of the New Testament assumes that the large categories of the gospel immediately daily inform the regular ways of doing life. And you're like, what? Let me say it again. It's assumed in the Gospels and then throughout the New Testament that forgiven people that know they're forgiven by God forgive others. And people who have repented in a large way, so shorthand would be capital R, repented the way Jesus described in Mark chapter 1, saying, I can't save myself. I know that. I turn to Jesus. Those people then know how to repent to others. And then the third step is the gift that we receive living in light of steps one and two. So forgiven people by God know how to forgive others. People who have repented before God also know how to repent to one another and receive the gift, which is reconciliation, first to God and then to one another. So those are the three steps, and we're on step two today. The first step is a must step. Forgiveness is spoken about in more direct terms than almost any other aspect of the Christian life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus states what sounds like a conditional, it's, it's, it's longer even than that, that forgiven people forgive. So we got to talk about forgiveness for just a minute. And some of you listen to me very closely, and thanks for that, by And some of us can't be at church every week for all sorts of reasons. And so we're going to talk about forgiveness again, and here's why. If we don't have a good definition of forgiveness, we become abusive religious people sometimes. We tell people to go back into unsafe relationships. We tell people that things are more healed than they are because Jesus is a healer. But if you listened really carefully to last week's sermon, for about the next two minutes, you can totally tune out. But we have to clarify our terms because when we don't, when they're flippant or shallow, we hurt people. We send them back into relationships where there should be full forgiveness and nothing else. Forgiveness is a release. It is first a release of the, pun of the pain that they cause you. So our temptation as a human being, when someone causes us pain, is to help them experience the pain that they caused us. Now, they might need to experience it, but we release our role in making them experience that pain. That's the first part. The second thing is we absorb, and absorb is a tricky word. The reason I like it is because it reminds us of the choice to either hit back, so these, com these, co these categories overlap, okay? So release, and then we absorb. I'm not saying absorb all of the pain of what they did. There's some illegitimacy and some malice there that you just want to let go of as best you can, but, but as a choice, which is to either hit back or absorb, we absorb. And then we do what's perhaps the hardest, and this is when we talk about this with respect to forgiveness, this is when we know the people we haven't forgiven. We both long for their good, and we don't long for their ruin or destruction. Those are the active choices we make as forgiven people with others when they hurt us. 
intentionally or not. You're like, no, no, my intention mattered. Have you ever been in a discussion with someone where you're apologizing for something, or they're, ask, they're telling you that you hurt them, and you start to apologize, and then you say, but I didn't even mean it that way, and it gets worse rather than better? You're like, if you didn't mean it, that's worse. That means you weren't paying attention, and you don't even know me, and you're like, maybe I should have just said I was sorry. My point is, intention matters, but all it does is change the tone of the conversation and the substance of it. Forgiveness and repentance transcend the idea of whether you meant to harm that person. It might change the forgiveness to a, I missed an opportunity for love instead of I sinned against you, but Christianly, the categories still apply. That we forgive and then we repent and then we enjoy the finding of one another in friendship in marriage, with our children, parents, co-workers, employees. But the New Testament assumes that forgiven people forgive. People who have repented to God know how to repent to other people, and then they enjoy reconciliation, that, that's, that large forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation lead to smaller. What we're talking about here can sound heavy, and there will be a point, especially in point three, I'll just give you a heads up, where it's going to feel a little heavy. And the reason is, a freed heart, in a world not free from sin and death, has the challenge of living out of that free heart, living out of who God actually made you to be, not your false self, is a challenge. It's a joyful challenge and one of peace, but it is not simple. It's not basic. It's not common sense. The world is far more corrupted than that, though it is still full of grandeur and beauty from God's creation. About 500 years ago, there was this thing, perhaps you've heard of it, called the Reformation. And when the Reformation happened, um, and that's when uh, a number of new kinds of churches developed. I'll just summarize it that way. That's a pretty poor summary. But one of the beautiful things that happened is Churches and groups of churches started exploring these questions and really drilling down on them when we got a series of documents from all over, especially Europe, but also other parts of the world, called Confessions of Faith. There's a Belgic Confession, a Heidelberg Confession, a Scots Confession, the, and, and they're beautiful and helpful. We were singing part of one this morning, I am not my own. That's from the language of, I believe, the Belgic Confession, the first one. The confession that we like in our denomination is called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it devotes a whole chapter and then tons of questions to, to this idea, repentance unto life. The newer language would be repentance that leads to life. And it's this idea, a transcending idea, that when we repent to God, we also know both to and how to repent to others. Listen to this old language. I have the newer version here. And I just, I don't like it as much as the old language. So can you abide some old school language with me from the Westminster Divines? Listen to this. And I did not put it on the screen on purpose. I have a couple of extra copies if you want to hear it. I want you to listen. And then I want you to look it up if you want to read more about it. There's 61 accompanying questions, all with scripture references about what this means. I'm not going to read all 61. Listen. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, oh yeah, doth, 
doth with grief and hatred of his or her sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. There need to be more doths in my sermon. I'm going to read that again. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his or her sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And I know what you're thinking. Whether is repentance a transient action or an abiding principle? It's question three. It's an abiding principle, continually disposing the person to mourn for sin and to turn from it all the days of his life. And like, that sounds kind of heavy. What's the alternative? To be crushed by it. If the world is as corrupt as the scripture says, then we have two options with respect to our tendency and other people's tendency to sin. To be crushed by it or to by faith trust that Jesus was crushed by it and turn to a life of repentance, a life of life. You mean to read any more of these questions? Or you trust me that they're all awesome? 61. So the second step, repentance, forgiveness and then repentance, is a state before the Lord. And I say that because it is a choice and it does involve words, but it is before that and during that and after that. It is what the Westminster Confession would call a frame of soul. I don't remember which question because I just covered them up, but it describes this as a frame of soul before the Lord that is repentant. And what does it mean to repent before him? It means acknowledging in every moment that we cannot save ourselves. We turn to him for salvation and for guidance into lives of life. And the reason that matters is in the last seven days, I'll bet you've heard someone either say directly, ask directly, or allude to the, like, aren't people basically good? Have you heard anybody say that? The last time I can remember for sure that someone said it, I was in Pennsylvania doing a regional thing with our other churches of our denomination, and my Uber driver said, I believe people are basically good. And I went, hmm. Because I wasn't sure that he wanted to talk about how complex of an issue this is. The men and women are made in the image of God, and yet men and women have this incredible tendency to hurt one another. And the world is a violent place, and tolerance is good, but it's not a great bottom line. And education's important, but a lot of educated people hurt other people. So it wasn't positive he wanted to hear all that. <laughs> so I said, hmm. And here's the reason that, that sometimes we ask a question that basically. It's because we're tired. We're tired of trying to figure out other people. How many of you have a brother or a sister? How complex are relationships? In the four families that Rachel and I come from, hers and then mine and mine and mine, <laughs> you should see the genogram. Um, there are three of those where there's a brother or a sister that's not talking to everybody in the family. And they still kind of talk to Rachel and I, but it's very tacit and we think we're, they're trying to get us on our side or they're kind of being mad at us. Aren't relationships more challenging than people are basically good? Can we acknowledge that? Some of you are married. 
Can we just acknowledge that it's challenging to find your spouse? Parents, it's so tricky because you have to learn to repent to your child who you remember when they were two. And now they're not two, and you hurt them, and you're like, but doesn't all my parenting matter? Yes, of course. Must you still learn to forgive them and ask for forgiveness and repent to them? Yes, relationships are so challenging. Uh, Sure, people are basically good. But uh, can we have a longer conversation? Maybe not. Maybe we should all just say, hmm. It is a frame of, the repentance begins as a frame of soul. And here's where we got to have an interesting conversation. Because I can remember the, the preachers of my late teens and early 20s, and this is where they would go to Jeremiah 17, 9. Do you know that verse? It says the heart is uh, deceptively wicked or deceitful above all things. Have you heard that before? I need you to understand something. If you are a follower of Jesus, your heart is not wicked anymore. You know how I know that? I kept reading Jeremiah. Fourteen chapters later, God takes away that deceitful heart, which in Ezekiel he calls a heart of stone. Same idea. Ezekiel chapter 36, connecting Jeremiah 13, 31, excuse me, and gives a heart of flesh. Repentance unto life is not because your heart is wicked. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not. But do we always live out of our true heart? No. That's where we get the tongue twister of the Bible. Have you ever read Romans 7? That's the I do, what I don't want to do, because of Paul goes on and on and on, and it's hard to read fast, even in English. Not kidding. It's like a tongue twister. Why is there a wrestling match? Because your true self is the new heart given to you. But living out of that is an incredible challenge in a corrupt world where there is an evil one who does not want you to live out of your true self, does not want you to learn to love God well and to to learn to love the neighbors God has put into your life well. There are residue pieces of your being that are not yet redeemed because Jesus has not returned and we have not gone to be with him, and those are at war with your true heart. Your heart is not wicked if you are a follower of Jesus. And learning to live out of your true heart is the Christian life. It is a joyful challenge, and that's why we have to talk about forgiveness and repentance and then reconciliation. This is covered in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. That's part of repentance, both spiritually and to our neighbors. Happy are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who mourn. Deeply satisfied are those who mourn. Just take whichever word you like best. I'm not going to fight that. I fought that pretty hard during the Beatitudes series. I'm not going to fight it anymore. Take whatever word you want. And this is not about suffering generally. This is about mourning over our inability to love well in a consistent fashion. This is about learning to be sad for our sin, but not crushed by it. The other scripture, I referenced Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. 
He's talking about repentance before the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is going to describe repentance. I'm actually going to look at verses 9 and 10, which I don't think I told the tech team, so you're going to have to actually have to open your own Bible today. You don't have to, but you'll know what I'm saying better if you do. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians is, uh, what, the seventh book in the Scriptures? Matthew, Mark, in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians, the eighth book in the New Testament. Turn to chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Paul is going to describe repentance. And this is in a context. We're not going to dig too much into the context of the Corinthian church and Paul's interaction with them, though that would be fun. It was a very messy church. Here, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And you're like, yeah, I kind of understood some of that. Let Let me break this down a little bit. Regardless of your intent, in relationship, you have hurt people. And we repent to them because that is, the step, that is the second step of restoring the relationship and reconciling. It is at first and foremost a frame of soul before God and then second towards that other person. From 75 yards away, if you see a Christian telling another Christian that they're sorry and please forgive them and they're going to consider their actions, it looks like they're repenting to that other person. But what a Christian is doing first and foremost is repenting before God because when you miss an opportunity for love or hurt someone, first and foremost you have violated love for God because he is God. You are you. And then, and it's, and it's almost simultaneous, but it's first to God and then to the other person. And then what happens when confronted, a repentant person listens and they consider, and you've been waiting on my definition of repentance, it's this, it's one word. Turn. Not the bird. Turn. Away from what we're confronted on towards God and towards that neighbor. And you think that's fine, somewhat religious language? Let's talk about what that actually looks like. A repentant person does not say, that's just the way I am. Ever. You're like, oh, Pastor Matt, you're being mean. There's a subtle difference between a repentant person and an unrepentant person. A repentant person says, that's the way I am, I think, and so this is going to take a while, but I'm listening. You're like, that's not much of a difference. No, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference because how you got to be the way that you are matters. And we do not change easily, but we do change. The Christian gospel makes no bones about it, doesn't even answer the question directly because indirectly it answers it so substantively. Do people change? Yes, A repentant person does not ever say, that's just the way I am. A repentant person doesn't say, you always. They say, it feels like you often, or it feels like you always. And the the repentant listener doesn't want to hear always, because always is a very harsh word in relationship. A friend pointed this out to me last week. Not my spouse, not one of my brothers or sisters, a friend. He said, when you say always, it's hard for me in a relationship. I was so thankful in the moment, because he's right. 
And a repentant listener, when they hear the word always, knows that the person is emphasizing the point that they're making. Though I would caution you about the use of the word always and never, when your friend or your parent or your child or your spouse or your coworker uses the word pay attention. A repentant person does not think or say, I would never have done what you did to me. What's the difference? They say, gosh, I, I hope, in their head, probably better than out loud, gosh, I hope I wouldn't do that. And it sounds like a subtle difference. And it's all the difference in the world and getting us to a place of reconciliation. And what's the difference between those two statements? It's humility. A repentant person will use the word hurt more than they'll use the word offended. A repentant person will say feels like much quicker than they'll say always and never. A repentant person will say it feels like we're stuck instead of you never change. Or you will never change. Feels like we're stuck. And you know how I know these statements? Because they're in me too. You know those brothers and sisters I was talking about that don't talk to everybody else? These things go through my head and sometimes come out of my mouth too. We're all in this together. And repentance unto life draws me to say, Lord, I'm sorry for that thought. Help. And to that person, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Repentant people are aware of their humility that they cannot save themselves and that their tendencies to love are imperfect and need guidance and help from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And humility comes up over and over and over in sermons because it's either stated or implied or fully assumed when the gospel is being talked about in the whole New Testament. It is not easy, it is not light, it is not common sense. It's not flippant, being a repentant, learning the, the, the steps of repentance, the rhythms of repentance requires humility. And then we receive the gift of reconciliation. The second step is a state before the Lord, a frame of soul, and then to our neighbors. That becomes a lifestyle. Yeah, that's what we're called to. A daily lifestyle of repentance. You're like, that doesn't sound like good news. But it is. In a corrupt world where love is so imperfect, families are so challenging, and spiritual families are so challenging, and we have been hurt as much as we have been hurt, and we have hurt as much as we have hurt others, then it is good news to learn that we can lead lives of life which are a frame of soul before God on a daily basis. We are repenting. I don't know if I can say this in such a way that it will feel light to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in a state of repentance with everyone you're in relationship with. And it's not because your heart is wicked. It's actually because your heart is good. And so you long to love them well and even better. And that can sound tiring. God appreciates your limits and has uh, provided for them in the Sabbath, in sleep, 
in fatigue of relationship and of work, and we are called to live lives of repentance that are daily. This is us living out of our true self. This is us rejecting the imposter that has never made a mistake. This is us rejecting the glittering image that doesn't need to say sorry, just needs more information. This is us rejecting the poser that is trying to present to people someone who has it all together. If you're a follower of Jesus, someone says, it seems like you don't have it all together. We say, I, you don't know the half of it. That's our response. That's the frame of soul posture before God and others. This is the one that rejects the false self that believes we can save ourselves both salvifically and relationally. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Do you know the gospel? I hope that you do. I hope you summarize it to yourself and that is a way you get through the day and enjoy the peace and the joy that Jesus purchased for you. But it begins with love. It does not begin with the odiousness of sin. It begins with love. It begins with God creating men and women in his Trinitarian image, creating them for community and beauty and nobility. Then they fall. I'm in Genesis 1 and 2 and now 3. And so we need the work of Christ his sinless life, the death that we deserve and not him. And then we are reconciled to God, free from the penalty of sin and death and called into lives of life where we learn the rhythms of forgiveness and repentance and then the gift, which is reconciliation, finding one another. For some of you, this has been a painful message because there are unrepentant people in your life. Jesus is with you in your pain. For some of you, it was a painful message because you said literally all those things yesterday or this morning on your way to church. Jesus heals and forgives and is growing us up right now. And you're thinking, there is not the strength in me to do this. And you're partially correct. You're wrong because if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. But you're right in the sense that you can't always sense all of that power. And what Jesus offered to us was that we taste and see that he is good. You know what I'm talking about? That is part of what this table is for. The body and the blood of Christ that we taste and ingest and believe more deeply that he loves us and calls us his own and we are then strengthened to live lives of forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation would you pray with me as we approach the table Father in heaven, would you help us to know and to understand and deeply believe that your call to us to lead lives of repentance before you and others is actually a light and a joyful thing. And it is where we find our true selves through your Holy Spirit's healing and power.
Father, there are so many stories of, of violence and pain, abuse, distress, and disorientation in this room, and yet you are the healer of our past, of our anxious hearts today, and of our nervousness about the future tomorrow. Would you help us to know and to believe that even as we taste and see it? Amen.